Welcome to Terragrams. I am Craig Brizone and I'll be your host for the 26th Dispatch of Terragrams. Before we begin, I must tell you that Terragrams has reached a critical impasse in its evolution and is in aid of assistance. To continue, Terragrams must begin to rely on contributions from listeners like you. Your support will assure you that you, your colleagues, studio, faculty body, students, and classmates can continue to benefit from our growing and open archive as well as our forthcoming conversations. All donations count. Please help. Visit our website at terragrams.com for more information. Today in Dispatch 26, we are joined by historian Mark Tribe. Mark Tribe is a professor emeritus of architecture at the University of California, Berkeley. He's a landscape and architectural historian and critic and has published extensively. His books include A Guide to the Gardens of Kyoto, 1980, Modern Landscape Architecture Critical Review, 1993, Regional Garden Design in the United States, 95, Space Calculated in Seconds, The Phillips Pavilion by Le Corbusier, 96, Garrett Ekbo, Modern Landscapes for a Living, 97, The Architecture of Landscape, 1940-1960-2002 Noguchi in Paris, the UNESCO Garden, 2003 Thomas Church, Landscape Architect, 2003 Representing Landscape Architecture, 2007 Drawing, Thinking, Confronting an Electronic Age, 2008 Spatial Recall, Memory and Architecture and Landscape, 2009 Tribe has held Fulbright, Guggenheim, and Japan Foundation Fellowships, as well as an Advanced Design Fellowship at the American Academy in Rome. Terragrams is very happy to welcome Mark Tribe. Mark, thank you so much for joining us and taking time out of your stay in Vienna. Welcome to Terragrams. In the past year, you've published two books on representation. The first entitled "Representation: Representing Landscape Architecture, and the second, Drawing, Thinking, Confronting an Electronic Age, is your first book, and perhaps the two of them, the first which was an extension from an, a symposium in 2001, was it catalyzed by the decade of change in technology and media? I think both books stemmed from teaching in many ways and also a, a research in which you, one looks at historical documents to see how representation has changed over time. But what we were trying to do in the first symposium was to look at the different, there were several axes uh, by which we were looking at uh, representation in landscape. One of them was the axis of time, how is time represented, where Stephen Daniels spoke about Humphrey Repton, uh, James Corner uh, explained his drawings and how they represented process. Uh, another axis was historical, which was what had happened in the past and what was happening today. Diane Harris spoke about um, historical prints and whether one could trust them as factual evidence, mm -hmm. uh, which questioned basically all graphic communication, how much of it is factual and can be believed, and how much is mm -hmm. actually a form of fiction, uh, either because it was wishful thinking mm -hmm. or, or a projection of what might be, uh, which actually never, never happened. Uh, we had other axes was across the design process that started with... Uh, uh, conceptual drawings, design drawings, construction drawings, Loriolan, and the last one was just the different sort of typologies of drawing, which mm -hmm. was the plan, um, 
a plan axiometric uh, perspective was covered in, in several essays as well. And then there was two on media, uh, one on photography and one on uh, cinema, uh, which uh, Kenneth Helfand did. So the idea was to try to get this relationship. But both of them, in a way, were, in a, were not questioning the importance or what the computer does today, but essentially we seem always to be looking forward and never backward, and we're never starting over because even computer, most computer renderings are perspectives mm -hmm. that use systems that have been around since their reinvention in the, in the Renaissance. It's just in a different way. But uh, part of it was also my, both books, I guess, part of my questioning whether the detailed uh, computer perspective is actually the best way to communicate or, or fly-throughs, these uh, mm -hmm. uh, computer simulations. Um, I mean, my own feeling is that they're really excellent in replicating what the view would look like, but they're actually more difficult to, to, to extract an idea from. Because a sketch, you only put in what you want to be in that picture. Um, these detailed things are like photographs in that everything's in there, and more or less like consistent textures for trees and things, rather than focusing on the idea of a tree or the form of four trees, which a sketch actually does a much, much better job at a conceptual or, or communication level. The drawing thinking um, uh, symposium uh, from which the book derived was also, um, since we now have a generation of students and we're getting to have a generation of practitioners who cannot draw without the help of a machine in some way, um, certainly things have been gained. We never questioned that. The question is what's been lost? And the prevailing theme in that book actually was less graphic and more about we've lost being in the world <laughs> that when you draw something, you actually have to take a lot of time to be there to look carefully, to look at proportions, look at materials, look at light qualities and all these things. But when you take a photograph, particularly one with a cell phone that you're not even looking for a viewfinder, mm -hmm you're really detached from where you are. So we're, we're trading off uh, expedience for uh, skill or knowledge in, in some way. So those were the origins of those two books. What do you think we're exchanging our time with, if we're not spending as much time? It seems we chatter. <laughs> we're twittering. We're, 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 we're twittering, or we watch YouTube, or we, I mean, it's, it's uh, I think there's, fragmented knowledge. I mean, it is knowledge in some way, or it is experience. I don't know if it's knowledge. I think one of the other problems is that we think information and knowledge are the same thing. The Internet's fantastic for information, <laughs> but it isn't necessarily knowledge, and I never know what you can trust right. on the Internet, you know, like the Wikipedia phenomena. Mm -hmm. uh, anyone can put it on, and anyone can call someone on it, apparently. But uh, I, I don't know what people are doing. They may be doing more jobs, but less completely. But, uh, um, but in general, you know, it's just everything is expedient now. You know, it's easier to send an email than a letter. And it's easier to, I guess, send a text message than an email. Mm -hmm. I don't know what, what the ultimate form of that will be. But, uh, and do you think perhaps the process of making, design, and conceptualizing of the landscape is also sped up through the economies of making landscape? I don't know because I'm not in practice, so I don't actually know hour for hour what's happened. What I found in, in design studios and schools, however, is that the shift to the computer rather than to hand drawing 
has had a number of consequences, which at the moment I think are somewhat negative. One of them is uh, a loss of a sense of scale. I mean, scale is one of the things that I think is quite difficult to learn for any student, you know, until you have enough things that are actually drawn, modeled, and then built, so you can see the relationship. Uh, you're always guessing just how big anything is. You have no idea. But with a computer, you're not working to any scale, really. You assign a scale to it at a certain point, and then you print it out, and a lot of people are shocked for the first time. So that scale issue is, is one, I, I think, a somewhat um, probably negative consequence of it. Another one is the tendency to work in parts for, and lose the sense of the whole, because it's so big it doesn't fit on your screen. Mm -hmm. So that's also a problem. Mm -hmm. And uh, there's also is just also a social issue where everyone's working on their laptops that they take home. Uh, there's no sort of sketches and paper lying on the desk around the studio. Mm -hmm. There's nothing to start a conversation about when mm -hmm. someone gets bored with their own work and wanders over to another desk. Mm -hmm. They can't say, oh, what, what, what's that you're working mm -hmm. on? And particularly with the laptop, I found you have to be directly in back of mm -hmm. the person, their head, and no one likes to be in that position mm -hmm. in either way. All that said, I think there's going to come a time when the drawing table will come back in. Uh, and it will be all an LED display of some type, and mm -hmm. we actually will be working with larger drawings on a larger screen. Mm -hmm. I don't know if it'll be horizontal or vertical, mm -hmm. but uh, I think we're going to get to that form. In, in that sense, this is a transitional generation. Mm -hmm. Or it could be that I'm of another generation, and people learning today only with computer uh, actually master things in a different way than you did by hand. Mm -hmm. It was interesting, one of the authors in the book, the speaker, Harley Jessup, is production manager at Pixar Studios. He explained how for their, their films, the first four years out of six years are all done by hand. Hmm. And this is the center of computer animation, right. you know, for films in the world. So that, I thought, was quite ironic, but also hmm. very, very interesting. I think one of the abilities that the computer gives us as we lose the scale of our drawing, um, but also gives us the possibility to jump scales rather ra rapidly. Yes. You're not working on one fixed, one fixed piece of paper. You can mm. quickly zoom in, and you're at a, at another scale, uh, one scale that you may not be able to sort of understand, but right. yet it's a, right. a, a, a quick jump, jump between between scales. On on the other hand, one learned when you learn to draw that if you do a plan at a sixteenth of an inch, that's a schematic plan, and it only has a certain amount of detail. When you get to quarter scale, you're then a quarter inch to the foot. You ha you're required to put in more because it's blank. Right. You know you have to put in jams and headers and all the, the detail right. stuff in order to make it look complete. That is gone also. Right. And a lot of times when you have too much detail at some point and then are printing out at small scale, uh, the, the drawings actually get jumbled. Right. The representation you know, doesn't. Yeah, the, the, there used to be across. a correlation between you know starting out simply and small mm -hmm. and then getting more detailed and large mm -hmm. as part of the design process. But no longer are we limited by the scale of the drawing no, no. relative to the phase of the project. Right. We need to somehow internally right. determine well, how much is And of course, the enough. beauty of that, as Laurie Olin talked about in the book, was that uh, in, in terms of construction drawings, is that you can easily go from design development to construction. You're not starting over. Uh, in terms of pedagogy, however, it seems to be so much work to get the basic design into the machine that I found the students 
uh, what, what the computer does really well is manipulate and multiply. <laughs> so once the stuff's there, you, you kind of massage it and change it. Mm -hmm. You rarely see anyone starting over the way they used to. Or, you know, they designed one room and then do 50 of them, right? Because the idea that all those rooms might be different, uh, you're a little less likely to do unless you have a program that can distort walls or enlarge things or whatever, which you could do. It's, uh, again, it also could be based on the skill with which you're, you're using mm -hmm. I've overheard it said that Jim Corner is Ian McCard with software. <laughs> is there any truism in this? And what can be learned from... Uh, well, I'm afraid I don't know McCard's working methods of detail <laughs> or, or, uh, or Jim Corner's. Uh, but it seems there is something in terms of the translation of what was originally an overlay process using different layers that now with software you can accomplish those kind of uh, intersections and uh, conflicts. Um, on a single plane and work with that in some way. But, you know, we have so much more information now at hand. That's another thing with the global positioning systems and uh, GIS systems. I mean, there's just so much more to work with that mm -hmm. McCarg had in his time. So mm -hmm. I, I would hope every landscape architect has <laughs> that kind of software, at least, mm -hmm. and is using it in, in the projects. You're familiar with the Fresh Kills project and field operations proposal mm -hmm. um, for the project. How do you feel their park proposal compared to the other finalists? And what are the strengths that the project, it, when and if it's, it's, uh, it's constructed, what are the strengths it will give to New York? I don't know. It seems pretty far from New York. When I was looking at the map recently, I was looking at a map of New York City. It's part of New Jersey rather than mm -hmm. part of New York. So I, I have a feeling this could be used more by uh, New Jersey people mm -hmm. than it is could be New Yorkers. Well, then just as well be New Yorkers. <laughs> right, right, yeah, who may want to be New Yorkers on Sundays or something. The documentation as it's published in books and things is so small scale and relatively little for a large project. It's very difficult to judge one from the other. I, I don't know on what basis the jury actually chose uh, the field operation scheme over the other one. I cr criticized all of them, in fact, at this Harvard co conference on large parks. They didn't publish any of the opposing views I noticed in the book, however, by saying I wonder why they were called parks, because almost everything in the discussion in most of the schemes uh, was actually about natural and soil mm -hmm. remediation rather than how people use the thing. And if you look at a list of all the activities that went on that any of the competitors said going on, all of them, as I remember, except skateboarding or something, could have taken place in Central Park. So mm -hmm. there was nothing in terms of new activities that seemed to be generating those schemes. Is it the new, potentially new landscapes that are being used to, to make the park? Uh, I don't know how new they are. I mean, they look like earthworms and there's some shapes and whatever. I mean, at a scale that large, it's pretty hard to do anything that visually or topographically is radical in some mm -hmm. ways. We have other issues that are generating these things. But uh, Adrian Kruse at that same conference raised what I thought was the key issue uh, for that and also the Downsview Park is, should it all be a park hmm. uh, as opposed to a natural preserve or part of it developed or whatever? Hmm. It seems uh, we've been accepting, uh, and this, this is Adrian's idea, not mine, we just accept any of these derelict sites that we're given, like all of, the, all of it should be a park. And in fact, there may be no money for maintenance, surveillance, uh, any any of the mm -hmm. things that you need but to the, have. But like, like some of the national parks, 
in North America. Mm -hmm. They're yeah. rather large scale. They're not right. parks in an urban Right, okay, yes, sense. yes. But these were intended more as urban parks, you know, in some mm -hmm. ways. I mean, the great park, mm -hmm. the one in uh, Southern California that Ken Smith is Orange County. working, Orange County is a great mm -hmm. park. Um, I mean, it's, it'll take 25, 30 years to do mm -hmm. it, and I think a lot of that is basically just left to be uh, tended, let's say, but uh, managed, mm -hmm. but certainly not designed and maintained in that sense. Where, does, where do we stop calling it a park? Well, it's still called the Great Park. I mean, no, but in, like, for instance, well, Fresh Kills, where do we start calling well, it a park? Th this, this has been a, well, I think if people aren't in it, we can call it a nature preserve, <laughs> right? If people are not allowed in it, mm -hmm. for example. But this has been uh, something in the English language which has been in, imprecise mm -hmm. from the beginning. I mean, the British often call what we call English gardens, they call it the park. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, Versailles actually has the little park and the big park, but they're both parks, not gardens. And we I call mean, them in the, the end, gardens. does it matter no. whether it's a park or not a park? No, it's uh, well, in some ways, because it, it does color how people approach it, what they expect from it. I or mean, whether they'll go to it. Or whether they'll go to it. I mean, do you expect to climb on a big industrial ruin in a park, or is that something else? I think these things change over time, though. Mm -hmm. I mean, we're getting to assume now mm -hmm. one type of park's got big industrial ruins in it. Mm -hmm. Another one is a swimming pool. But we're in a way, redefining park yeah. one is a, you know, a, a waste fill, and it's in fact not very usable. Right, perhaps. right, right. Speaking of the Orange County Great Park and representation, the Ken Smith final winning proposal mm -hmm. produced a number of illustrations that were out of the ordinary mm -hmm. relative to uh, today's park comp uh, park competition proposals. Can you talk a little bit about the impact that they may have had? Well, uh, I'm getting this from Ken. I wasn't there at the jury, but uh, he, he said he suspected that the other four competitors, I can't remember the exact number, uh, would be doing, you know, what's gotten to be somewhat standard in, in that large office landscape practice anyway, <laughs> let's call it. Small, uh, Which is computer-generated uh, plans, if there were sections, and perspectives with photoshopped people floating around there uh, somewhat uncomfortably. And he had what I think was a brilliant idea. He got a, 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 a Korean-American woman who normally does manga. Jun uh, Kim. Jun Kim, mm -hmm. uh, cartoon uh, illustrations to do these drawings that were, I don't know, is that 10 by 20, maybe? Mm -hmm. They were horizontal, almost like you'd see them through a windshield. Mm -hmm. But the really brilliant thing was just not to do pictures. He actually had a program. It was for a day in the life of the park mm -hmm. from morning to night. And then there were some annual events as well. Um, actually, Ken contributed. He wrote an essay on that mm -hmm. in the Drawing, Drawing Thinking mm -hmm. book as well. Mm -hmm. uh, and the fact that he said that I think that it was social, but also that these were quite really strong, absolutely black and white drawings that you could see across the room. <laughs> which attracted the attention and then the content of them. He thinks that was a big part of the mm -hmm. winning, winning that project. I assume there also was good planning involved, too. <laughs> there was something else. Something else, something else, yeah. <laughs> yeah. In an essay originally written in 1995, entitled, Must Landscapes Mean Approaches to Significance in Recent Landscape Architecture, you assign landscape architecture to five roughly framed approaches, the neo-archaic, the genius of place, the zeitgeist, the vernacular landscape, and the didactic. Fourteen years later, 
Are you still w witnessing these same five approaches, or have there been not not really? And uh, we probably should qualify what you say. It wasn't that that's what all landscape architects were doing? It was more or less in the discussions of quite a number of landscape architects, mm -hmm. better known ones, when presenting their work, they presented it in these in these mm -hmm. terms. And they weren't neat and fixed, five categories. Some of them overlapped, and yeah. some people would do two. Um, some of those, I think, have disappeared. This neo-archaic, for example, you don't hear much about anymore. That was where people would make reference to rather prehistoric or pre-literate sites like Stonehenge, mm -hmm. and, uh, or they talked about summer solstices that mm -hmm. it would shine through the window and come down in the center of the playground or something. And that's what made this a, a meaningful design and a good design. Uh, what was behind that was what had preceded that. We had McCarg with environmentalism. And then you had somewhat of a formalism. But I was very curious about why people at that time started talking about meaning as sort of the key characteristic of landscape design, uh, which was interesting. I mean, and then the question was kind of trying to work out for myself. Can you put meaning into a landscape when you're designing it? My conclusion being no, but <laughs> others <laughs> might disagree. Do you think it's fruit, a fruitless, a fruitless exercise for a designer to, to attempt to put meaning into a landscape? Well, I think the conclusion, it's been a while since I read it, the conclusion was that, well, certainly I, I qualified it. I was saying if you have a circumscribed group that, like a religious group, that has similar beliefs and people are educated within that, it is possible to do that because everyone is sharing a common symbol. But if you have a multicultural audience, a multi-generational audience, it's, it's going to be almost impossible to achieve. However, I think you could try to design landscapes in such a way that it could stimulate reactions that lead to meaning. Mm -hmm. But that's a, a bit vague. <laughs> I don't know how you'd ever pin that down. When you visit a landscape, a constructed landscape, how do you evaluate? Um, well, I think different ones are on different terms. I mean, certainly I appreciate formal beauty <laughs> and beautiful maintenance and care. It might smell nice, lots of things. But also, in terms of something I could learn from, one tries to look at the intelligence behind the design. Just in general, I, I've never really appreciated things that are formally beautiful but stupid or arbitrary, like so much, so much building today, for example. I think landscape architects, for better or worse, have always been grounded with environmental factors they had to deal with in a way that architecture has been a little bit uh, separate from, particularly with new technologies like the computer, which has allowed architects to really build frivolous things. Um, I won't name names. But uh, I think that then there's there's just do you want to stay there? Or don't you want to stay there? I mean, that's it. Do you take you see there? Look around, take your pictures and leave, or is it something that kind of induces you to stay? But I like uh, the clever. I like the ability of someone to turn liabilities into assets. Mm -hmm. That to me represents kind of high design, and it's more than just. Uh, uh, derelict sites that have been created for new uses, that kind of, which is often just gentrification, which isn't necessarily positive. But I like the idea that someone, you know, there's uh, surface water 
and they did something with it rather than draining it or maybe draining it's the best solution. But there was something they took that and using that made it into a feature of the landscape was an idea. I, I think I like it because it's clever, mm -hmm. uh, but they also have to have some formal ability to, to uh, convert that asset to a liability in such a way that it has mm -hmm. some aesthetic presence. Mm -hmm. um, I think that's kind of the highest thing. But it also could be a mastery over something. I think that's one, you know, Gertrude Jekyll's a masterful mm -hmm. use of plants. Japanese dry gardens, you know, it's a masterful use of minimum materials and things. So you certainly respect, respect those. But there's probably quite a range of what makes a quote-unquote good mm -hmm. landscape uh, in some way. It could be social. Just, you know, look at this. Everyone in 27 miles always comes to this place on Sundays. Well, it must have something mm -hmm. other than just being, I mean, people will use green space if it's there, if there's enough density of housing around it. But that's also a, a problem with landscape because, okay, if they use it, what more do you need to do? What more could you want? Uh, it rests well, our critique of it. Yeah, and, and that may be fair for a lot. I mean, obviously, most landscapes should be like background landscapes, just things that serve and they're fine, pleasant, easy to maintain, and they really work. And then there are others. It's like architecture. There are others that... Ninety-five percent of the city should recede into yeah, the background, yeah, and five yeah, percent yeah, should right, move right. forward. I mean, they will just by the nature of the, either the project or what people want to want to spend on them. Do you think the heightened discourse on sustainability and environmental factors, given climate change, has given landscape architects and landscape architecture the possibility to really reinforce what? The practice has been doing for a long time, or to redo what it what it can do and what it contribute what it can contribute to. Well, it to seems society. to be going two directions. It could go back to what happened in the '60s and the '70s, the post-McCarthy era, which is to say, all we care about is sustainability, uh, which becomes a license not to do anything beyond sustainability. I would always like to think of. We have to do things with sustainability in mind the way architects have to do things with gravity in mind. I mean, we just have to do it. Mm -hmm. But I think there are greater ends to landscape beyond sustainability. Mm -hmm. that, that's a platform. Mm -hmm. So our little motto in the beginning of design class was to elevate pragmatics to poetics. Mm -hmm. You know, that, oh, Edward Weston had a quote which I always uh, found quite, quite engaging. The photographer, that is, which was uh, photograph a thing not for what it is, but for what else it is, which is kind of that special property of it. Uh, it's like saying, yes, we need a mound for whatever reason because there's soil here. Okay, what do you do with the soil? What shape does it take? What else can you get from that soil rather than just putting it as a lump somewhere on the site because you couldn't get rid of it? And it seems sustainability is the soil, right? How do you make an art out of sustainability? I mean, you can have a, an ugly sustainable landscape and a beautiful one that people want to go to. Yeah. Speaking of landscapes often frequented, do you find that they're that they show the profession having a strength, or show that there are weaknesses in the profession that there, there are things that as a practitioner should be doing better? It's really hard to talk about the profession because I certainly don't know everyone in it. I think the majority, from what one gets a sense from the journal, 
is that they're small offices doing essentially service work with very good intentions, and it stays at that level. Hmm. So, I mean, when you talk about the profession, most of the time we're talking about a very small group of offices um, who, for whatever reason, are more engaged, more interested in ideas, more interested in furthering landscape in some way. Uh, beyond what normal practice is. There's leaders in every profession and mm -hmm. every discipline. It just seems to be, unfortunately, natural mm -hmm. in that way. Do they seem to be communicating well to the public? Is there a real dialogue, perhaps similar to the dialogue that was happening in the 50s and 60s through Sunset Magazine, yeah. Garrett Ekbo, and his ability to I, reach out? I don't think so. I think there's an irony that as landscape broadened its purview, it has less identity as a profession to the general public. In 1914, whenever it was, and if they knew the word landscape architect, it was to do parks and gardens and estates, mm -hmm. and maybe a road or a parkway. Mm -hmm. That's what landscape architects did. Now it's sustainability, it's remediation, it's this and this and that. So it, it, it's rather diffuse. And most people, in fact, because they're trying to get more work, uh, actually offer a broader variety of services. They offer more. And I think, somewhat ironically or negatively, the identity of the profession has gone down in the eyes of the public because of that. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if that's good or bad, but uh, no, I don't think, um, partly because of multiculturalism, you don't have this uh, focus on trying to educate everyone into good taste, which you had in the 50s. You know, the, Things like the Museum of Modern Art had programs and did a book called If You Want to Build a House, mm -hmm. you know, and everything in it was modern style. A rather soft modernism, actually. It wasn't really strong international style. It had wood and uh, alto furniture and things like that. But it was definitely a modern style. And there were a lot of things like that that were trying to uh, modernize the taste of uh, GIs who had come back and were now building in suburbia. But I don't think you'll ever be able to do that again because everything is too diffuse. And advertising for 20 years has been telling people, well, we're not a group, you're an individual. Mm -hmm. Get the blank, 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 you deserve. Well, I don't know why you deserve anything, mm -hmm. but you know that's, that's what the advertising says. Have it your way. Mm -hmm. Everything is about you, you, you. Mm -hmm. And it's certainly with internet, it's going more in that direction. You have recently talked about uh, some research that you had made on the Phillips Pavilion by the architect Le Corbusier, which was built for the World Ex Exposition in Brussels. And Phillips, the electric company, hired Le Corbusier to design a spatial color light music production for the Phillips Corporation. Do you think that Le Corbusier was a good vehicle for this this icon of identity for Phillips? Well, they certainly got what they wanted out of it. It was a very strangely shaped building. But that was probably of less consequence than uh, what went on inside. Uh, the music, or organized sound, as he called it, uh, was by Edgar Varese. The, there was these films that worked on someone in Philippe Augustini. But Le Corbusier's brilliance, I think, was to make this scenario that coordinated these people working actually in different continents. Not that the everything would be in Concord, like they had no idea what the music was mm -hmm. when they're doing the pictures, and Varez had no idea what the pictures were when he was doing the, a vague idea, I should mm -hmm. say, because he was in New York working on it and so on. But it was the first pavilion, first of all, uh, the Brussels Fair from 58 was the first one after the war, mm -hmm. so that was a, a big, 
big thing. And they came to him to design the building. Someone named uh, Osip Sadkin was going to do the sculpture, and Benjamin Britten was going to do the score. That was what they had in mind. And Le Corbusier basically told them, don't worry, I can take care of everything myself. <laughs> and you've got to get Edgar Fine master uh, Yes, yes. We're, the sculpture will be the building. You don't need sculpture and this kind of thing. And then he created what he, he was termed the electronic poem <laughs> and uh, this multimedia thing. As far as I know, this is the first commercial pavilion uh, that did not show their products. The idea was that you would use art as a vehicle for promoting the Philips technology, which was all of these. It was sound, it was lighting, it was first automated performance. I mean, they had rooms of equipment that today would probably be on a laptop, <laughs> you know, to control everything, but at that time, 300 speakers inside the space, and, and the music was multi-track, and it actually was scored for the space. And it was an eight-minute presentation with a two-minute transition inside and out. And all the newspaper clippings from the time, the people were really wowed by it. It, right. was, it was one of the events of the fair, that and the Russian-American uh, standoff. They, the pavilions <laughs> were next to each other, and they were, it was real Cold War stuff. Uh, people had no idea what they were watching, but they thought it was something really impressive. And it got a million and a half visitors in wow. six months. So certainly Phillips got out of it right. uh, what they wanted. However, uh, the Phillips board certainly didn't like, well, the music in particular. You know, uh, at a test of one minute of it a few months before the fair opened, uh, the chairman, uh, Fitz Phillips, I think his name was, said, this music represents everything we're fighting against in the free world. <laughs> but Le Corbusier threatened to quit, so they kept Ferez on, and actually we know the music today. That's the most important piece of that project, rather than the, the building, which right. was taken down after the fair. Did they go on to hire Le Corbusier for anything more uh, no, important no, no, than that? No, because it was a, a no, no. In, a virtually insignificant project for him. It was, and that was one of the problems why the building, I don't think, was this good as it could have been. It was mostly done by his assistant, Yanis Zanakis, who then Le Corbusier basically let go, giving Zanakis a great musical career, as it happens. But uh, Le Corbusier was at Chandigar, you know, he's building this new capital in India, so he's in India a lot and working on La Tourette, much more larger and more significant capital projects. city or yeah, tiny yeah. corporate pavilion. Yeah, which is why the pavilion, I don't think, ever interested him when you look at the documents from the beginning. It was really the spectacle because he had been interested in the synthesis of the arts uh, since the 1930s. And in a way, that's what that project represented for him. What is interesting us as a profession in the work of Le Corbusier still today? Why is he uh, such a, continue to be such a central role in, uh, in reference to contemporary practice? First of all, the guy was so multi multivalent and multi-talented. There's a large exhibition on uh, that started the Feature Museum, it's now in London. And there's town planning, there's furniture design, there's villas, there's uh, large civic complexes, there's sculpture, there's painting, there's drawings. I mean, there's a lot to work with. Mm -hmm. um, and well, well like recorded. That. Yes, the guy saved everything, as it happens, every document, you'd say. But I mean, it's also true, we go back to Mies van der Rohe, we go back to Frank Lloyd Wright, and there are people that have really contributed things to us. And 
I don't know if anyone copies Le Corbusier in that sense, mm -hmm. in toto, as opposed to learning things from it. Mm -hmm. um, but he did contribute, you know, these five points for a new architecture. One of them was the free plan. Uh, one of them was the separation of the structure from the skin, which was an old notion. But once he formulated that, that became very important for things that came after. Mm -hmm. But certainly he learned from the people that came before him, like Frank Lloyd Wright. You are listening to Terragrams, and our guest is Mark Tribe, a landscape and architectural historian and critic, and Professor Emeritus of Architecture at the University of California, Berkeley. Your original training is as an architect. How did you migrate into the field of landscape? It was through Japan, actually. I, I went to Japan first, 1971, and stayed for seven months. I, I took a quarter off and then just basically traveled from top to bottom. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was focusing on, ironically, a folk architecture, mm -hmm. which took me out to little villages, and castles. Japanese castles. Mm -hmm. There was a small, very short castle building period between end of the 1500s mm -hmm. and to about 1620. Castles as we know of them in Europe? Well, they're very different, actually. I mean, they're primarily labyrinths of walls with a very elaborate keep or, or dungeon, mm -hmm. as it's called. But that was to allow you to live in a traditional kind of palace building with a garden and everything inside. So it was basically the labyrinthine nature of these walls would keep the people out mm -hmm. so you could live nicely enough. And most of these things were never even attacked. But, uh, you know, dutifully I went around to the major temples and shrines, and, you know, that was part of what you were seeing. And often uh, you weren't looking at the building, you were looking through the building, mm -hmm. and there was some green stuff out in the back and some rocks. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I looked over there to see what, what was in mm -hmm. the back, you know, because there this sense of continuous space that you get in Japanese architecture, the walls of your building are the walls of the site, mm -hmm. which means you don't need walls. Anyway, the dry gardens in particular were very easy to like, mm -hmm. uh, you know, because they look modern, mm -hmm. uh, you know, a lot of parallels with modern landscape design. So and you're I, interested in modernism Yeah, the time. yeah, yeah, good modernist training, so, or modernist training, I don't know how good it was. <laughs> um, so I started reading about these dry gardens or this called Zen Gardens. And then it mentioned, oh, this is only one of the Japanese garden traditions. There's the Paradise Tradition, Paradise Garden, which leads to stroll gardens and tea gardens and all this stuff. So I started reading more about that, and at some point it mentioned some interesting parallels or shared characteristics between the stroll gardens of 17th century and the English landscape gardens of mm -hmm. 18th century. Oh. So I got curious and read about the English gardens. Which, oh, and these in some ways were a reaction against the formal gardens of France, which drew on Italy. So it was more and more and more of that. That was basically the course by that time. It was just more, more interesting. And then mid-'80s, I started wondering what was being done in the modern period, which there was almost nothing on it. And then uh, I also met Dorothée Ambert in 85. And she had done a thesis on one of the cubist, so-called cubist gardens, cubist landscapes in France uh, when she was doing her undergraduate, uh, her diploma work in, in, in Paris. And she started developing that on the cubist things. And it sort of, we fed off each other 
uh, doing projects together as well. <laughs> and then Museum of Modern Art had a, a, a symposium in 1989. I was invited to those. It became the book Denatured Visions. I can't remember what yeah. the symposium itself was called. It took a couple of years for the book to come out. And that was so bad. Uh, or it was 88, because we did asthma. Yeah. It was so bad. You know, they had just gotten people they knew, whether they knew right. anything about landscape or not. Had you, had you been invited? Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, I was on a panel. Okay. I wasn't a major, major speaker. But it was things like Vincent Scully and uh, Ken Frampton. And the essay in the book's much better. Uh, Ken really did his homework after the fact. But the original talk was no one's done work on, well, there had was been people. Was it about the landscape? It was about landscape. It was architecture and landscape. Mm -hmm. And uh, Robert Rosenblum, I think, talked, why, why did Mondrian use green? I mean, mm -hmm. it was at that nature of things. Mm -hmm. It was supposed to be about architecture and, and landscape. So I said, I think we can do better than that. So the following year, I organized the landscape thing. It was called Landscape Architecture Re-Evaluated. And among other things, got Dan Kiley, uh, Jared Eckville, and James Rose together for the first time for 50 years. The Beatles. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And actually, it was the last time because Rose died a year later. Mm -hmm. They didn't. Rose and Eckville uh, still had maintained a friendship, but Kiley didn't really have any contact or any interest in them either. And then, what was it? What was it like the, the this last get together? Oh, well, it's funny. It's like uh, Ekpo had prepared a text, but he saw soon off that neither Kylie nor Rose did, so he didn't use it. <laughs> and Rose described a few projects, but it was Ekpo being what, the more descriptive or the... Well, it's more the thinker and the writer, um, although Rose early on did some very important writings. And then Kylie, by that time, was giving his Kylie lecture, landscapes like making a martini or landscapes like skiing or, you know, whatever. But it was really nice to have them there. And, of course, uh, we had a lot of other people, uh, Peter Walker, Martha Schwartz, Alexandre Chemitov, who didn't write for the book. Anyway, that became Modern Landscape Architecture Critical Review, where we also included some essays, historical essays that everyone made reference to, but no one ever read because they were too hard to track down. So we, we put it all in the book, which is why I think it stayed in print. You know, I don't know about the new essays, but it's the easiest way to get to the old ones. So. Dorothy and I used to say we got into uh, modern landscape history being sucked into the vacuum, that basically, especially in English, there was almost nothing at that, at that time. Why had the history of landscape been so bare, even up through the 80s? Yeah, I don't know, because uh, I wasn't educated in it. So it would be interesting to know what was being right. done at schools. I suspect the people teaching history at that point, like Norman Newton at Harvard. Uh, but he had written the history. Yes, already, yes, so. yeah. We're kind of old, you know, and so the new generation probably wouldn't have bought anything they said, especially history. Right. But if landscape involves nature and culture, it's poles in some ways, I think by that point, not entirely due to Ian McCart, but there was, there was the social group as well as the environmental group, but design wasn't that strong and as an interest. So I don't think history, which tended to focus on the design aspects, although it could have focused on social and environmental, but I don't think history is very been taught that way very often. I think that's another reason it just wasn't interested in history.
still most landscape programs are third grade history. Hmm. I think University of Virginia has more than any other school I know mm -hmm. of. Uh, Do you collaborate in the design process at all on teams? Are you invited in to be a participant? Um, no. I, I mean, I haven't sought it out. So I, I Just nothing that you've desired to, no, no. to make? It's more to uh, I have more than enough for my time. <laughs> I wouldn't be opposed to it if the project were interesting. I've done some little things myself mm -hmm. here and there. But the trouble is, most of the design work I've done doesn't meet my own standards. So <laughs> <laughs> You're a pretty good critic. As we know, it's much easier to criticize someone else than it is to do it yourself. Right? <laughs> You, you are a historian. Yes. <laughs> but you tell me you're not a theorist. Yeah, theoretically. <laughs> <laughs> Why? Well, what is it about theory that you No, I just, I, I don't think, I don't think that abstractly. With. I think rather concretely and pragmatically, which I don't think, I guess it's one form of theory. Also, uh, as we've talked about numerous times over the last couple of years, I don't know what theory is in landscape architecture. Often what people say is theory doesn't seem like theory to me. It seems like selective history or key writings. Is that the same uh, in the field of architecture? Or do you think uh, theory is more uh, concrete? Well, architecture has tried to borrow theory from other mm -hmm. disciplines uh, in, the, in the last 20 or 30 years. But I, I find once they try to apply it to architecture, which is often too, too uh, directly without transforming it, and uh, like most of the literary theories are evaluative theories. They're not productive. I mean, they're not for production. <laughs> and architects use, try to use them for production. You know, they read Deleuze and Qatari, and they talk about striated and smooth spaces. So I'll make one room that has striations in the plaster, and the other one will be smooth. I mean, that <laughs> kind of, well, that's caricature, but, you know, that kind of direct application. But doesn't this, this theory in landscape art in architecture or landscape architecture doesn't this doesn't this act as some sort of fertilizer for practitioners yeah, well ideas can come from anywhere but i don't think that's necessarily theory i mean if you see a brilliant flower and you say the next landscape, but it's not history either is it no that's observation right. i think or being in the world but if you see some, wow, that's really incredible at a botanical garden, and look at the relation of those two together, that's not theory, that's just observation and learning in some ways. No, I would say probably in the design professions, despite my rejection of it, we have to have something by which we, uh, we operate. You know, it's sort of the operating system like for a computer, and all, also uh, which involves ethics, and it also involves evaluation and standards. Otherwise, we can't improve anything we work on. How do we know it's a good landscape as we're working on a project? How do we improve it and make standards, it better? Standards, you mean um, ethics, you mean Well, moral, moral values and also moral values, too. You're not doing anything horrible, mm -hmm. right? So, so I think all of those are probably involved in a theory of. But as I say, what's so problematic about it is, in the sciences, we know what a theory does. The theory mm -hmm. means that if you do the operation under the same conditions, you'll get the same results. That just never happens in design. So there has to be a different definition of theory in the design professions, which I assume exists. I just have never really found one. <laughs> have the evaluation methods been codified, or the, the ethics been 
um, outlines? No, no, they're, 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 something to they're dynamic. Or? They're going to change, mm -hmm. right? Most historians say you can't teach history without theory, mm -hmm. right? If we read Humphrey Repton, is that theory or is he just telling you how to do things? Is mm -hmm. it a kind of method? But it does have values, it does have standards. So maybe that's what constitutes theory. There's always two voices in my head whenever I'm describing Terry. these. I mean, one of them is Terry Eagleton, who's a literary critic, uh, and in his book, Literary Criticism, I think was called, he said, anyone that's not interested in theory is operating under an old theory. <laughs> <laughs> and the other one was a, a, a deceased British poet named Tom Gunn, two ends, which is, dogs have no theory, but they get there all the same. <laughs> So that's the two poles we could operate with. I if think. you're not a theorist, are you a Methodist? Yes, right. <laughs> well, probably method's more important. Any method will have probably theory, or at least, again, these values mm -hmm. that are tied up in it. Uh, you can't operate without that, because any method has to have some way that you can say, oh, it's getting better, it's getting mm -hmm. worse, or generate some other way of doing What's something. the tribe method? How do you, how do you operate? Normally from observation. So. Yeah. I can tell you how I write. I don't know how I operate, which is... Well, uh, um, writing being your primary... Well, it's just like think about it and then start writing. That's <laughs> all. I mean, I always tell students, think you're writing a letter, because students say, God, it's so hard to write because I don't know what I'm going to say. I said, well, do you know what you're going to say when you start a conversation or when you start to write a letter? <laughs> so I refer to myself as a vomit school writer. You know, I just... <laughs> Think about it and write it, no outlines and very few notes and this kind of thing. And then you start enriching it. You go mm -hmm. back through it and say, okay, you mentioned this project. Why did you mention it? Do you have to fill it out and how do you work on it? And, things. and then the last stage is just kind of working on language and clarifying ideas. But I tend to write pretty, I think, compactly, mm -hmm. economically, rather than some people that go on at greater length. Mm -hmm. so. You haven't been teaching for a couple of years. Mm -hmm. However, you taught for three, 38. 38. <laughs> How did the students affect your work? It's trite, but you learn from teaching. It's like staying in school after all, right? <laughs> and you, Except uh, the financial relationship is reversed. Exactly, exactly. Well, I mean, one, students read things that you don't know about, or now they look at programs you don't know about, or something on that order. And also in... in arguing a point or discussing something within the context of someone's projects, you're going to get ideas you never had yourself. And what it also does is establish uh, that the studio is, is, you know, you're part of an intellectual discussion. And unfortunately, a lot of offices, you're so worried about getting the what out on time under budget, mm -hmm. you don't talk about why you're doing what you're doing and, sure. and, and how it could develop. Mm -hmm. Jim Corner talked about critical practice or things. Um, I don't know if it's critical, but you know, just to be thoughtful is actually a little rare. I mean, because you know, uh, if you get to be a specialist in some particular type, you tend to fall back on what you've done on other projects, and, and there gets to be less and less sort of creativity and questioning. You get more expertise and more knowledge mm -hmm. in it, which is why clients go back to people mm -hmm. who have done playgrounds before or mm -hmm. whatever, you know or know how to work with government regulations and, and these kind of things. It's the natural. But uh, I can normally tell from students uh, who's going to end up teaching. Maybe not full time, mm -hmm. but they just question things at a different level rather than just kind mm -hmm. of doing it mechanically. Mm -hmm. 
to, to close out our conversation. If you would like, how would you prefer that your work impact the profession? Um, I don't frame it that way. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, no, normally the writing is um, it's my way of almost finishing with the subject rather than starting it. The Phillips book was done 12, 11 years ago now, I think, which meant the research was 15. Mm -hmm. And it's a little strange, in fact, to go back and do a lecture on something that we've done because I haven't continued research on mm -hmm. it, right? The book was kind of a culmination. It was every bit of graphic documentation you could find, essentially, mm -hmm. at that moment. And very little has been found since. There have been some computer simulations. But it's, it's a way of kind of finishing. It's, it's a topic that interested me. And it, it forces you to align your thoughts, work something out, publish it if you can. Or a lot of, I probably have like 75 lectures that are floating around that were just written for a conference like this and mm. just don't go anywhere. But I don't know about who reads them. I'm always shocked people do them, that people publish them, you know. If I liked golf, I'd play golf. I mean, I don't think the world needs another book and I don't need another book. I don't need it for 10 years. <laughs> it's just sort of what I do. I mean, a psychologist would say I'm probably striving for love. I just want to be loved or something like that. It's a surrogate. Right. It's a surrogate for love. Well, yeah. What is your next love? Uh, let's see. Well, we've had a few books in production. One's on There's one that's recently just memory, said is memory, which should be printed. Pr printed next week. And then one co-edited on Dan Kiley mm -hmm. uh, that also we printed more or less the same time. Mm -hmm. And then I'm series editing. On this, Dan Kiley's work in general? Or no, it came project? from um, University of Virginia had a symposium. Kylie spoke, and then there was a roundtable with a very young Laurie Olin and Warren Burr and others uh, in 1983. Mm -hmm. And they did a small publication on it, long out of print. And uh, Reuben Rainey was able to get a donor to pay for reprinting it. But he also then uh, assembled an essay I had written, one that Greg Bleem had written for my Modern Landscape book. And then um, uh, added essays by John Beardsley and uh, Elizabeth Meyer. Mm -hmm. So it's those four. It's 160 pages. Looks like a real Sounds book. Great. Most of the photos are mine mm -hmm. because Kylie's archives, you know, burned. Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, after 1960. So. And you're passionate sources. about photography. Well, yeah. I mean, some people drink. I take pictures. <laughs> <laughs> you know, that's, uh, that's so I, I have actually because I've been to look look at uh, Kylie's work. Mm -hmm. So. We have uh, so that's in print. The next one, I think, unless someone makes a more attractive order, is to get back to a book I did on five modern architects and the idea of the site. <laughs> and the essays on Alvaralto and Luis uh, Barragan have been published already, but I have to modify those. Mm -hmm. And I've written a chapter on Richard Neutra, mm -hmm. and I still have to write uh, Frank Lloyd Wright's desert work and focus and just on the desert and Nice van der so that's one book, and then I should get back. There, there are three or four others sort of started, mm -hmm. and uh, one by one, somehow. Do you have more time now that you're teaching, or less? Uh, more time now that you're not teaching, or less? Yeah, time? of course. Although, you know, three, it's, uh, uh, I just did taxes recently. So <laughs> uh, about three months, three and a half months last year, I was away. Mm -hmm. uh, conferences like this, where I like to stay a few extra days and see things. Sounds like see fun. people. 
Uh, it is so far. You know, I mean, I don't think you can do it forever. So, but for now, it's it's fine. And what I do, as long as you just take care. Uh, you know, my 15 minutes of celebrity, so I'll, I'll take advantage of it while I can. That's all. But, but the nice thing is, you know, uh, when you travel conferences or short stints at schools, people actually say thank you. It's really it's good. It's, yeah. That's important. That's important, right? You never get that when you're part of the work, you know. Just get complaints that the quality of the photocopy of the reader isn't good enough. You know? Well, I'd like to say thank you for joining us on Terrograms. It's been really great. I'll look forward to seeing what you make of this. <laughs> and, and I look forward to seeing your next, your next books in print. Good. Thank you. Thanks, Thank you for joining us for the 26th Dispatch of Terrograms. Terrograms must rely exclusively on contributions from listeners like you. Your support will assure that you, your colleagues, studio, faculty body, students, and classmates can continue to benefit from our growing and open archive as well as our forthcoming conversations. If you have enjoyed the Terragrams initiative and are looking forward to our upcoming dispatches, go to our homepage at terragrams.com and select Donate. This will lead you to the PayPal site for an online contribution. Otherwise, please contact me directly at info at for alternate forms or methods of support. All donations count. Please help. To find out more about Terragrams and sign up for our next deliveries, please visit our website at www.terragrams.com or subscribe to us using iTunes. Special thanks to the books for their wonderful and very cool music. You can expose yourself more to the books at thebooksmusic.com. Join us soon for a conversation with Canadian landscape architect Claude Cormier. This concludes our 26th dispatch of Terragrams. Thank you for listening.